Hello, I hope you've had a good week. Um, for anyone who's listening that is um, a teacher, I hope you've had a good week back at work with the majority of the children being back in. Um, I know personally for me it's been uh, quite nice to have uh, the building a little bit of more of a buzz inside it, see more people. It's genuinely lovely to see the kids and have a bit of a catch up with them and try and... Um, you know, get caught up on what they did in lockdown. You know, quite a few of the, the students that I spoke to um, have got pets. Um, and so obviously I regaled my various um, situations that Betty got me into. You know, the least or um, uh, the most, uh, I suppose, amusing of one being me just lying on the kitchen floor uh, for about an hour just saying her name to her trying to tempt her out from behind the, the washing machine with bits of broccoli if you remember me saying that she um, disappeared for a couple of days but I knew she was there because I could hear her snoring from behind the washing machine um, but anyway yeah quite a few kids said that they got, uh, got pets and um, it was nice to get caught up with them nice to get back into a little bit of a routine as well um, and you know give the day a little bit more more structure I suppose and um, I understand as well you know a lot of people may be concerned about the going back to school um, whether that was from a safety point of view um, anxiety point of view concerns about you know numbers of cases and things going up but you know, you never know. Hopefully, things are are looking up a little bit, um, in terms of that, and we have the end date. Hopefully, of of the roadmap that's come out now, haven't we? As well, of June twenty first. So we'll see. Hopefully, things will get a little bit better from now on. Um, main news this week, obviously, and I think you know, unless you lived on the rock, you would be aware of it. The outfall or fallout, sorry, wrong word, of the Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, um, interview really interesting. I've always been um, quite a supporter of, of Meghan anyway. I think that she's a um, breath of fresh air that the royal family needed for a number of reasons. Um, one of the reasons that I kind of became interested in, in, in the history and, and reading around it. Um, and I think that when they got married a couple of years ago, there was like an invigorated feeling around it, something a bit new, young, interesting, vivacious, and that seems to have unfortunately just gone. It's been eroded away. In an episode I did a couple of weeks ago, when I was looking at the complicity that we have in, in the media's portrayal of women, Megan was one of the women that I mentioned in terms of the narrative that's created around women and why often as observers, we just have this opinion about particularly women and why we do or don't like them and we can't always understand why that is or we don't question ourselves as to why that is but it's it will always be or, or nine times out of ten it will be because of the narrative the media have spun um you know things i mentioned in previous episode where um you know kate and megan were put side by side in newspaper articles for pretty much the same topic how kate was shown to be positive by holding a baby bunk whereas megan markle wasn't and that's something that um megan discussed in the interview which i thought was very very interesting the discussion about her own mental health i think was important um and for a lot of people particularly of my generation and, and earlier, the mirrors and parallels to Diana can't really be forgotten. And I think it's quite understandable why um, Harry in particular wanted to get out of that. Um, 
obviously we never know what goes on behind or closed doors um, allegations of bullying etc things like that I do think that's slightly well-timed I would say maybe being cynically that the allegations of, of bullying or the investigation into it anyway was raised in the news um, a couple of days before the interview maybe I'm being cynical but I don't think so um, but I thought she came across very well very calm very measured of clearly intelligent and very well educated and um, I'm interested to see where the rest of the, the, this conversation goes. I don't think it can be um, ignored. I think that the conversation will con will continue. And if anything good comes out of this, surely it's got to be the fact that Piers Morgan has fucked off Good Morning Britain. I mean, what an idiot. His vitriol and his anger and his misogyny and his disgust towards um, her and just women in particular, but her this week and how um, aggressive he was towards everything that she was saying because obviously he's a white man so you know he knows more than, than she does about her own experience quite clearly um, and I forget the, the name of the other presenter on the show as I don't regularly watch it but his defence of Megan and his argument against Piers Morgan was absolutely spot on and Morgan walking off the set well that's the baby that he is and if there's one good thing that comes out of this it's the fact that he's gone. Um, this week I want to talk to you about um, something else that's happening in March. Last week's episode is very short because I wanted to give that time over to you to go and research women with it being International Women's Day. Um, last week I hope you did that or read around the um, topic at least. I do just want to make a, an, a correction from last week. I referenced a poem and um, I meant I said the poem was written by Benjamin Zephaniah. It wasn't. It was written by John Agard. I was thinking of Benjamin Zephaniah as I'm reading a novel by him at the moment called Face. Um, but the poem I reference is actually by John Agard or Agard. Um, March is also um, Eating Disorder Awareness Month. And it has a week particularly from the 1st to 7th of March, which was just last week. And I've recently as of this week, had an article published online for SEED, which is a charity that works with people who are suffering from an eating disorder and who um, are recovering and, you know, surviving an eating disorder and the trauma of it. And in the link, when I post this on Spotify, I'll put a link to the webpage um, for anybody who wants to have access to support or to read the article in full. And I will just put a brief trigger warning that in the um, article that I'll read and in, you know, this podcast in general, obviously it will talk about um, an eating disorder, the mental and physical effect of that um, discussion of around su suicidal idea um, ideations as well. So if this is maybe something that you don't want to hear about, then, then you, you know, there's no need for, for you to feel that you have to. However, if it's something that you're interested in or you want to hear about or educate yourself about, then of course listen or at least click the link and you can go and read about the, the topic in your own time. Um, before, I, obviously, I talk about 
myself and my own experiences. Um, this is an extract from the book that I wrote that one time I dated a Mormon. Um, and it's a book that I wrote during lockdown. It was a reflection on my own experiences of mental health, anxiety and the shame that comes with that. And I think that for me, my issues with food and weight were all tied into my mental state at the time in my early 20s and late teens and it was a part of my experience and illness that was deeply rooted in shame, the shame of my mental state, of my intrusive thoughts, of my mood and the shame around my appearance, which is something that I'd handled or hadn't handled very well for a large part of my life in it and have reared up into my relationship with food and my weaponization of food. And the article is actually called Weapon Weaponizing Food and Associated Feelings of Shame. Um, shame is something I've spoken about a lot on this podcast. It's something that is referenced a lot in Jimmy the Jamil's podcast, I Way, which I know I've mentioned a number of times, but I thoroughly suggest you go and listen to a, a number of the interviews on there um, and how intrusive and, and toxic shame can be. And often that is caused by things that we see and read and have access to, such as the press. And just going back into the Meghan Markle situation for a moment, the shame around speaking out, how dare you, a woman of colour, how dare she have a point of view, the shame that's then created for anybody who um, has experienced, um, you know, suicidal thoughts or self-harm or um, experienced something because they are in a minority, whether that's racism, homophobia, um, transphobia, and someone like Piers Morgan, who has power in society, has the privilege of being a white man, has um, been part of upholding the patriarchal structure of the country and the media. The shame that's then put back on somebody for speaking out is extremely problematic and very, very painful and hurtful. And um, it's something that needs to be discussed and stopped. And, you know, maybe episodes like this, essays you know, similar to the ones that I've written, will just create a conversation about shame and how we feel and helping people um, feel less alone in, in the conversation and the topics that they, they are experiencing. That's what I'd like to think anyway. And that's one of the main reasons I wrote the book. Um, and I'm working on getting it published at the moment and published various sections of it with various charities and um, working groups online. I've um, you know previously had... Um, essays published for LGBT websites and magazines so I'm trying to raise the topic and um, support people as much as I can. Um, Beat which is a charity um, which again like Seed works with people who are going through an eating disorder or have suffered from one or are in recovery on their webpage so eatingdisorders.org.uk there's lots of information and, and reading on there that you, you may want to go and look at and they estimate that approximately one and a quarter million people in the UK have an eating disorder with around a quarter of them so 25% of them being male which is something I'll, I'll raise a little bit later on and that's 
um, there was a survey done in 2007, so a little bit old, but an adult psychiatric survey, and they said that um, 6.4% of adults display an eating disorder, um, as in they develop that newly as an adult. It's not something that, that's been there um, explicitly since, since childhood. Um, the most common eating disorder um, that, that, that Beach says that they come into contact with is anorexia. Um, um, but actually the highest is binge eating disorder, which is 22% of cases, um, with bulimia also being 19% of cases, which I'll uh, reference as part of my own experiences with an eating disorder. And some eating disorders, they, they say with the people they've worked with come from as young as six children experiencing um, anorexia, but can continue to develop and raise their heads into way past 70 years of age. So it's not the stereotype of, you know, an 18 year old girl who looks a certain way. It's much broader than that. And the stereotype and the, um, again, the judgment, and I think the societal shame that comes with that is something we need to discuss. And I think that that's kind of an odd paradox that quite often there's a shame around weight being large, being overweight, being fat, but then there's also a shame around being thin. You look unhealthy, you're a bad role model if you're too thin, um, which, you know, celebrities get all the time. The too big one minute, the too thin the next. And that, again, that shame around weight and appearance is just something that um, just needs to stop. And it's just too destructive and too restrictive for people people to live by and live with. Um I know I mention Taylor Swift a lot on this podcast. Um, I am a Swifty. Um, and in her documentary, Miss Americana, that I've referenced a few times and I would recommend watching on Netflix, it is, it is interesting, particularly the, the bullying she experienced, you know, globally online at one point of her career is, is just so, so heartbreaking um, for anyone to go through, you know, um, to go through that. But she, in her documentary, talks about her experiences with restricting food and the impact of the media and how that affected her um, relationship with her own appearance and um, intake of food. So I'll just play you a little video clip of that. I'll probably get sued by whoever made the documentary, um, but let's face it, they're not going to hear it, are they? Unless somehow I go viral over the next couple of days. Um, so here's just a little clip of... of Taylor Swift in the documentary. I've learned over the years it's not good for me to see pictures of myself every day because I have a tendency and it's only happened a few times and I'm not in any way proud of it but I get I tend to get triggered by something whether it's a picture of me where I feel like I looked like my tummy was too big or or like someone said that I looked pregnant or something and that'll just trigger me to just starve a little bit, just stop eating. I thought that I was just like supposed to feel like I was gonna pass out at the end of the show or in the middle of it. I thought that was how it was. And now I realize, no, if you eat food, have energy, get stronger, you can do all these shows and not feel it, which is really good revelation. 
Um, and I think it's important that someone of that um, kind of social or global fame talks about something like that and also calls out there that it is triggering when people say negative things about your appearance and it is, uh, whether that's weight related or not. Um, and really having the uh, education, the ability to discuss and be open about these things and to talk about it. Um, Freddie Flintoff, which I think surprised a lot of people, uh, came out as uh, bulimic in a documentary that he released uh, about a year ago. And I think that it's equally important that a male public figure spoke about that. Um, and uh, the fact that I think someone like him came out and spoke about it really raised a lot of people's awareness of, of the illness because if you think about someone like him who was known for being a bit laddish, you know, um, kind of a, a bit of a drinker, um, kind of happy-go-lucky in sport, the idea of, um, you know, someone of that lifestyle and that culture and a man and a white man and a heterosexual white man suffering from an eating disorder or really any type of um, mental illness that goes along with that, I don't think was expected by a lot of people. And that's a very important conversation to have. And he, um, in his documentary, speaks about his um, suffering and hiding the secret of having an eating disorder for 20 years. And it's, again, the hiding of something like that is because of the embarrassment and the shame for all sorts of reasons. The shame of your own appearance, which is why you kind of starve or purge or whatever in the first place. The shame about being ill. The shame about maybe wanting help for it. The shame that you think maybe you don't deserve the illness as well. And the self-perpetuating cycle, which certainly I found myself in, of when it really, really roots into you, that in an odd way, you can feel successful at something, you know, in in your own mind, if you're suffering from intrusive thoughts or, um, you know, aggressive um, thoughts that come into your head that you can't control day in, day out, well, food is something that you can, and you can feel successful at that, and it's something that you can for want of a, a better word, better, because you can eat less the next day, you can drink less the next day, you can exercise more the next day, and you can better yourself at getting iller, if that makes sense. And it's a really problematic and very destructive cycle that I got myself into, which I'll talk about. Um, I'll just play a very, very quick clip of just hearing him, Freddie Flintoff, talk about his illness, and then we'll look at um, my my article and my, my experience in a bit more detail. Throughout my career, I've lived with an eating disorder called bulimia. And despite being in the public eye, for years I've managed to keep it hidden. I still find it hard to say bulimia. I use a dance around it to say I've been sick. I've done it. I've done it this year. It's not right, is it? I know it's not right. And I think him saying there that he said he dances around, he doesn't say bulimia, he says being sick, because even the word is shameful. Um, maybe even more so for, for a man, I don't know, but 
the the fact that he was ashamed of, of even saying the word means that people just are not comfortable about discussing a topic like this. And that's something that we need to be more aware of to open up space for, for the dialogue around this particular topic. And I think being aware that it affects men more than we perhaps believe that it does. So I wrote uh, an essay, I wrote an article about my experiences with eating disorder. Um, as I said, it's on the SEED website. I'll put a link to this in the episode when it is uploaded. If you would like to go and read it or read around the topic and read the other essays and articles and blogs that other survivors of, of the illness have put on there, then you can. And to really educate yourself about this and what you can do to help people or how you could try and have a conversation with someone if you're worried about them or if you yourself recognize that maybe you have um, uh, tendencies to weaponize food and control food for various reasons then again this is something that you can go and look at and read and hopefully get the help that, that you need and it is eating disorder awareness week or just has been so um, hopefully this is a time to, to kind of raise this this topic in more detail so weaponizing food and the associated feelings of body shame humans are creatures of habit we eat the same food drink the same brand of coffee and wine we buy clothes from the same stores we like certain seats in cafes. Habit provides comfort and makes us feel safe. It helps us feel in control when some aspects of our lives feel out of our hands. This can be a positive, helping someone stay organised to prioritise, keep their head above water. However, many people who suffer from depression and anxiety have habits that can develop into rituals that start eventually taking on a life and illness of their very own. Some stay forever, some change, such as wiping door handles, checking plug sockets, making sure the door is locked. But why? Control. To calm that inner voice that tells them something dreadful will happen if that ritual is not completed in full. I don't think I was aware as a child of having patterns of behaviour or that any part of my day-to-day -day life was a possible sign of obsessive pulsive it's a hard word to say, obsessive compulsive disorder. I would never say that my compulsions have overly prevented me from living a normal, for want of a less stigmatising word, life, but I recognise that they definitely flare up at moments of stress and low mood. When I was younger, I would always do things in groups of four, I remember having a VHS set of Buffy the Vampire Slayer box sets. I was going to pause there for a second. Yes, I am that fucking old. I am now 34. And it really upsets me that everything from my childhood is now coming up to the 20, 25th, 30th ugh, anniversary. How disgusting is this? In about three years time, it's going to be 30 years since Clueless was released. What? That only came out the other week, didn't it? Scream is going to be 30 years in about two years' time. I swear that was only on at the Odeon last week. Well, obviously not because of COVID, but you know what I mean. 30, I mean, it's just gross. 
Anyway, I'm 34, I'm an old fuck. Back to my um, OCD. Um, when I touched one of the VHS tapes on my shelf, I would have to move it into a correct position. And when I touched it once, I would have to touch it four times. If another tape next to it didn't look quite right in alignment, I would have to move and touch it, but do that four times. And then this multiplied into four times four times four times four and so on. And I remember one night staying up well after my mum and dad and my brother had gone to sleep, sitting on my bed and just looking at the row of tapes, squinting, tilting my head, making sure that all of the videos were straight and if they weren't, well, that ritual of four started up again. And at that age, about 12 or 13, I didn't really question it. It was just something I did and felt that I needed to do. By the time I got to university, though, this obsession with controlling something had morphed its way into my eating habits. I had initially started to exercise recently at that time as a way to improve my mood as I didn't want to take medication back then. I wanted to try and do it without being on meds. So I would go jogging or swim. But for the first time, it made me look at the food I ate and why I was eating certain things. I began to question whether I needed that biscuit or that sandwich, whether I should have that chocolate bar at all, because if I was exercising, surely then eating was getting in the way of the good work I was doing. As good as exercise was for me mentally, the way that I allowed it to change, or no, I didn't let it change, my illness manipulated it into controlling food, soon became a very serious issue all of its own. At 20 years of age, I was at university, studying for my finals, working on my dissertation, having psychotherapy once a week, just starting on medication, not sleeping due to the constant flooding invasive thoughts I was having, and at the same time, feeling constantly hungry, constantly tired, and working myself to the bone because I had to get, had to get that first class degree. All the while, feeling utterly and completely physically, mentally and emotionally hollow and just exhausted. I used to go to bed most nights and just imagine my own death. It gave me comfort. It was the only way I saw out of escaping this prison that I felt I was in and I would always be in. Voices were constantly telling me in my head that I was a risk to everyone around me. Food made me feel ill just to look at it. My body ached from not eating, but also from vomiting the little that I did consume. And I was exhausted from lack of sleep. I kept a diary of food and drink that I'd eaten in a day. And if I've managed to sick it up, whether that be in a toilet, a sink, a bin, a convenient bush, even into a carrier bag that I carried around town and took home with me on a bus, I would place a little X next to it in my book to show that I had succeeded and purged it from my body. One evening, I remember sobbing because my light bulb in my room went out and when I went to fix it, I dropped the replacement bulb on the floor and it shattered and I spent the rest of my night in complete darkness. I'm pretty sure there's a metaphor in there somewhere. And each night, I would then get into bed and run my fingertips over my stomach 
my hips and my ribs and feel the bones below. I'd try and fall asleep with my iPod on to try and cover up the voices inside my head, huddled under the covers, and would envisage just drowning myself, just throwing myself into Sefton Park Lake near where I lived to just end everything. And it was probably the darkest period of my life, but I just didn't see it. I thought that was how my life was, how it had to be and should be. I deserved to feel that way. At the time, anyone who tried to broach the subject of my eating and weight with me, such as my parents or a couple of friends, would just be placated, I hoped, with my replies of, I ate earlier, I'm not hungry, I'll eat when I get home, or, or, or. I'd run the shower and taps to cover up the sound of me being sick. My mum soon cottoned onto that one. And I would change my routine and eating habits so that the students in the house I was living in wouldn't be aware of what I was doing. One day I'd shower and vomit into the sink in the morning. Then I'd go to the bathroom and vomit into a toilet after a lecture in the afternoon. Then I'd go for a walk of an evening and vomit into a bush. And then the next day I'd completely change the order. I was crafty, I was obsessed and I was very ill. But any type of obsessive behaviour develops into more than just a part of your life. It becomes your life and you plan your whole day around it. And I suppose that my OCD did really prevent me from living a normal life. I just didn't realise it at the time. But why did I do it? On one hand, it was about weight. I didn't want to become fat because in my mind, I associated fat with death and I didn't want to die. Ironic, given that I was starving and purging myself and imagining killing myself most days. On the other hand, it was about control. If I could control my eating and what went into my body, then maybe, hopefully, possibly, potentially, my life would get better somehow. On a third and very frail final hand, it was all about punishment. More than anything, it was about my need to hurt myself. I was evil. I had voices telling me that I was every day. Words that stood out to me on a magazine page. Words that spoke to me every time I pressed a piano key when I tried to play. Words that spoke to me from my shoes when I would walk. And words that would come into my head every time, especially, I took a bite of something. Munch, evil, crunch, sick. So I had to harm myself. What other choice did I have? I deserved to feel bad about myself and therefore what I did not deserve was food. And it became the ultimate method to control everything that I didn't feel I could control. When I was powerless to prevent the voices and words inside my head, the pendulum of mood swings I was experiencing, being able to restrict and weaponize food and vomit anything that I ate was at least an aspect of my life I had a say in. I drank more than I ate, but only ever tea or coffee and never with milk. I read somewhere once that hot water and lemon helped you lose weight, so I started to drink that. And because eating is such a huge part of socialising, particularly with friends at university and people you live with, I spent less time with them in my house. 
and spend as much time as possible outside of the house, at the library, walking, sitting in cafes with black coffee, contemplating reading, completing my reading and writing for my courses. On one occasion, I was reading a William Faulkner novel as I lay dying, unironically, and I was trying to annotate it, but I fell asleep. I was so exhausted, I just fell asleep in the middle of the cafe. And being out so much naturally led to animosity from my friends. They questioned why I worked all the time. They stopped inviting me to do things with them. Understandable, because I would just decline anyway. And if I did rarely eat with them, it would be something like soup, which I knew I could sick up very, very easily afterwards. And I know that I probably was not the easiest person to live with at the time. But I was in so much pain. There was so much turmoil inside me that I just did not know what to do or how to handle myself. During my third year, I was pretty much a complete loner, going to lectures, studying well into the night and occasionally going back home. By then, my parents were more and more concerned about my appearance and asked me one evening about my eating and quite obvious self-harming. They'd heard me being sick after dinner. I insisted I'd just been using the toilet. I'd never vomit up food. How crazy is that? I was young, white, male, educated at university. Why would I have an eating disorder? But after more and more questions from them, I just couldn't deny it. My mum was upset. My dad was concerned. And I can only imagine the worry and the pain that I caused for both of them. And it's still something that haunts me now. At the time, though... It didn't haunt me enough to stop. I constantly took baths and showers still, just so I, or I thought I could at least, hide the sound of me being sick. And when I was back home from university, I worked at a hotel just around the corner, and I would time it so I'd have my dinner with my parents as close to my shift as possible, so at least they saw me eating. But I would then very quickly drive to work quickly vomit into the toilets before then clocking on and starting my shift. My skin became dry, my lips were constantly chapped and I was just always tired. Eventually, my parents seeing that I wasn't getting any better encouraged me to go to the doctor. I didn't want to and I didn't see the point. All I knew and understood was that this was how I deserved to feel and be. The GP organised sessions of psychotherapy for me and I was put on a first course of medication. Anyone who's been through psychotherapy will know just how tough those hours can be. You're talking about some of the darkest thoughts and feelings you've ever experienced and you are naked in front of someone you've never even met before, worrying that at any minute the mirror behind you will become a two-way mirror and you'll just be taken away strapped up, taken to an asylum, called a menace, called a danger, and they'll poke at you and cart you off. And Nadia Hussein, who you'll perhaps know from Great British Bake Off, made a documentary two years ago called Anxiety and Me, and she raised a similar concern that when she finally revealed her own anxiety and troublesome thoughts, she worried that that would mean her children would be taken away from her. And that is a very real fear of people who want and need support for their mental illness. What will people think? What will I lose? What will I have to change because I've spoken about it? Do I even deserve to talk about it and get better? 
During my psychotherapy sessions, my psychotherapist referred to something called the good and the bad wolf. Now, this is originally a Cherokee story, and in it, a grandfather speaks of two wolves. The good wolf represents joy, peace, happiness, empathy, all the positives in life. And the bad wolf symbolises anger, sorrow, regret, guilt, resentment, and all of the negative emotions that we have. And in the story, the grandfather simply asks, which one wins? It's the one you feed the most. With the moral of the story being that whilst we can't always control what happens in our lives, our minds, our thoughts, we can try to control our reactions to it. If a violent or a distressing thought intruded my mind, would I feed the bad wolf, strengthening my feelings of shame and pain that I deserved to have those thoughts and was disgusting because of it? Or would I feed the good wolf and turning that uncomfortable moment into an opportunity to see myself as a survivor, someone overcoming trauma, someone who deserves empathy from others, someone who's working through an illness? And I had a, a choice to make. And moving through psychotherapy with these sessions and my personal journey through those sessions, I went back to that story time and time again. Now, a shift in perception like that takes an awful lot of practice. I was terrible at it and I'm still not perfect at it now. I'm too quick to jump to the negative, to be critical, to be hypersensitive, to allow worries to spiral and leap out of control without even realising that it's happening. It takes dedication and time. Time to give yourself just to sit, to think, to weigh up your thoughts logically rather than emotionally straight away and to formulate the sort of list where you can see whether your anxieties are founded in fact or myth, created by an actual situation or your intrusive thoughts. After decades of feeding the bad wolf, it took a long time for me to try and even give a few scraps away to the good wolf. Now, I don't really like to use the word recover because I think it implies that you have a problem that's fixed and will never return. And like any illness, you can get better, improve, sure, but you can always relapse. If you break your ankle playing sport, you can repair it, rest it, strengthen the bone, but there'll always be a slight weakness there in the muscle. And that's the same with mental illness and an eating disorder. You can be given tools, you can use them, but you are always at risk of suffering from them again. That's the nature of the beast that some call the black dog, which was termed or once used by Winston Churchill when he described his depression. And comparing it to an animal is perfect. It can rear its head up at any moment. It can appear suddenly. It can be tamed for a time, but like any pet or animal, it can very unpredictably and unprovoked bite back. You can improve an eating disorder, but remnants of it that will always be there and it will potentially, without you even realising it, rear its head again. There's a scene in the television show called Pure where the lead character Marnie, who's experiencing quite sexual obsessive thoughts in her head, desperately asks her therapist when she'll get better and she's only three sessions in and she wants to know when she'll see results. When will she feel less anxious? When will she stop these intrusive thoughts? 
and the therapist informed the character that it's not as easy as that. It's unlikely that anyone can ever be completely fixed at all. All we can do is work on ourselves. We might never fully recover, but we can be proud of the work we're doing and trying to do with ourselves. Whether it be a wolf or a dog or another symbol you choose, just make sure you try and allow yourself the time and the patience to feed the right one. Much easier said than done, I know. Am I better now? Yes. Do I enjoy food now? Yes. Do I still worry about eating and drinking? At this moment in time, not as much. But in the future, who knows? Of course it could come back. Do I have days where I stress about food more than others? Yes, I do. Will I ever be completely comfortable with my eating habits? No. Is it about weight still? Yes. And is it about punishment still? Yes. I can't speak for everybody, obviously, but the overwhelming catalyst for my eating disorder was the punishment it allowed me to give myself because of what was happening inside my own brain and mind and thoughts at the time. And being able to control something that was also punishing me was an incredibly intoxicating mix. It made me feel good to make myself feel bad. And I was succeeding at being ill. And that is a vicious, painful, and potentially fatal circle to be trapped in. But it isn't one that has to last forever. That issue and thought process of... um trapping yourself in a circle is something that uh, Jamila Jamil talks about in her latest podcast um, actually when she's interviewing a cast member from Orange is the New Black who gives a horrendous story about what she experienced with the immigration um, of her parents and how quite often for people who are suffering from a trauma whether that be a physical illness, abuse, an eating disorder, a mental illness, quite often the pain that is associated or comes with those feelings can often be quite um, calming in an odd way because to be in pain, to feel sad, is an emotion you are educated in and you um, have experienced so many times before, it actually feels comforting. And with that, and I definitely have experienced this and still do, there is an element of sabotaging yourself and making situations difficult or problematic and sabotaging good things in your life because a you don't think you deserve them but b you actually feel more comfortable in feeling bad about yourself because you think you deserve to and you actually have had more experience feeling down than you have feeling up and therefore you gravitate towards the emotion you feel most comfortable with which is feeling sorrowful and that in an odd way can be quite comforting um the same kind of 
you know, thinking about having suicidal thoughts, it can be comforting to think that that is, oh, thank, you know, at least that's a way out, at least that's something I can do. And it's, that again, that paradox of finding comfort in something that is incredibly tragic at the same time. Now, if any of this is something that you want to find out about or have more of a conversation about, um, Beat Charity, Seed Charity um, are there available for you online. Um, I will put a link on the episode when it's published. And I always finish these episodes by saying something that I've done for the first time that week. With it being that one time a day of the Mormon, the one thing that I did that week. But this week, it's not something related to me. My parents have had their first vaccine jab, which is great news. I know a lot of people my age, their parents have had access to the jabs now, which is really um, comforting to know that, to know that things are moving in the right direction. So that's the first thing that's happened to me this week. My parents had their first job, which is great. I'm really, really pleased and thankful for that, that that's happened. So from this episode, I hope that you have maybe learned a little bit about um, the issue of, of eating disorders or maybe now want to go and educate yourself on it. Um, the links will be there on the Spotify um, episode if you want to go and talk to someone about it. Don't be afraid to to raise it with someone if you're concerned about them or ask for the help if you think you need it yourself. <laughs>